Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God says and then rightly divide the word of truth so that we can know what to believe. If you have a question, submit the word question in front of your comment, then write out your comment, reread it a couple of times to make sure that it makes sense. And uh, then we will go ahead and get to your questions. The first question that we have is one that we had last Wednesday by Psychman. And Psychman asked the question, um, I asked God why Paul would say such a thing. What do you think uh, God could say that would make me feel like that was a, uh, a silly question? not claiming he answered me. And he's talking about 1 Corinthians 15, 19. Now I took time to go back and to read this passage in its context. And Paul is talking about people in their day who didn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, that it was a miracle. They just didn't believe it. And were maybe still claiming that they were Christians. And so Paul fights against that. Now this is an important question because it is the same thing people are saying today. Progressive Christians are saying that they are Christians. They just don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. And so Paul again brings this up and I want to try to answer what was Psych Man's real concern here. I answered the idea that there are people today who are saying Christ didn't rise from the dead and that we need to make sure that we believe that. But I want to bring you up here on the screen this passage again and I think I can get an answer to what Psych Man was asking or is asking. I hope you're joining us here again today, Psych Man, or at least you see this later on. So in verse 17, he's talking about people who are saying that Christ doesn't raise from the dead and what that means to us if we could be, if we didn't believe Jesus rose from the dead, but we say we're a Christian. If I say to you, well, I'm a Christian, I'm a progressive Christian, I just don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. So then Paul would say in verse 17, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. Why, why even believe? If he isn't risen, you are still in your sins. And then he says, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So if Jesus didn't rise, he rose so our sins could be forgiven and he rose so we could have eternal life. Our sins wouldn't be forgiven and those who had died already would not be in heaven. And then he says this, and this is where I think that psych man was concerned about it. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. First of all, I want to point out this is not a question. This is a statement. I know it starts with the word if, but it's kind of like in John 14 where Jesus says, if I'm going away, I will come again to receive you unto myself. He's not making a statement. He's giving you a point of, of surety. I'm going away. And if I go away, I will come again and receive you to myself. So he says, if in this life, we only have hope in Christ. In other words, if we just have hope in Christ and he did not rise from the dead, then we of all men are the most pitiable. The reason that we are the most pitiable is because we are to make sacrifices for Christ. People will say things now, well, if I live for Jesus now and I live a pretty good life for him now and then I die and I'm wrong, hey, it's a win-win for me. Paul's saying, no, it's not a win-win because you are asked to be a living sacrifice. We are to give our lives to him. We are making sacrifices for wives and for children. Jesus said that we will by no means lose our reward. We are to lay down our lives and live for him. If we seek to save our lives, we'll lose it. If we lose our lives for him, we'll save it. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, what do all of our sacrifices mean? It means we gave up all kinds of sacrifices instead of living for today. And that's why he says, we of all people are the most pitiable. Let me read verse 19 again. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, that when we die, we're not going to be in his presence. We of all men are the most pitiable because of all the sacrifices that we make. And if we don't understand that there are supposed to be sacrifices within Christianity, then I think that we don't understand it at all. We're supposed to sacrifice for other people, for our families. Think about what a husband is supposed to do. He is to love his wife as Christ so loves the church and die for her as Christ did the church. 
He's supposed to lay, lay everything down. You live differently. You're supposed to anyway, husbands, because of your faith in Christ. You're supposed to treat your spouse differently. So I hope this answers the question. Uh, there were people their day denying the resurrection and claiming to still be Christians. There are people our day denying the resurrection and claiming they're still Christians. But if Christ is, is your hope now only, then we of all people are the most pitiable. If Jesus didn't really rise from the dead then, and we have our hope in him today, we're making all these sacrifices. And for that reason, it doesn't really matter. All right, so I hope, Psych Man, that that really does help you out. Um, sorry for the confusion and not really understanding uh, your question before. And as I said, I think anytime that we come to the place where we don't understand something said in Scripture, we shouldn't quickly go to, I don't agree with that. We should quickly go to, I need to understand that. I have a lot of places in my mind, a, a shelf and a lot of places on it for further information. There are a lot of things I don't understand. I'm understanding more and more. I want to understand more and more. I'm growing, but there's still a lot of things that I don't understand. And I think that by the time I think I've got them all figured out, there will be more things that I still don't understand. All right. So thank you very much. Uh, Psych Man, it's good to see you. Uh, yeah, I hope you joined early enough to be able to look at the question. Um, if you can respond later on, I'd love it to see whether or not I really got your question taken care of. Uh, again, you know, sometimes it's hard when you get a question in, you got to kind of try to read into it sometimes to figure out exactly what the question is. And I think that's why that happened last week. So we have a question from JG. JG, good to see you. Uh, and he has a question about the Antichrist. JG says, is the Antichrist going to be from the tribe of Dan? Is the tribe of Dan an evil tribe? I ask because they are not mentioned in Revelation chapter 7 in the 144,000. Thanks. Thank you, JG, for your question. So I think there's a lot here. So we know that the spirit of Antichrist is in the world and it is against Christ and it is a replacement for Christ. And we know that the Antichrist rises up. This is the man of sin, the son of perdition and that he rises against God and he tries to replace Christ. That's the spirit of the Antichrist. We think that he is from the tribe of Israel, uh, excuse me, we think that he is from Israel because Israel seems to accept him as their Messiah. He might not be though. It also says in Daniel chapter nine, I think it's verse 24, that the Antichrist will arise from the people who destroy Jerusalem. That would be the Romans. Now, it doesn't mean that there can't be a revival of the Roman emperor, empire and a man who was Jewish and also Roman could take over and that he could be the Antichrist. Um, but the Bible says nothing about the tribe of Dan that would make us think that the Antichrist is from it. I think the reason the tribe of Dan got left out of the book of Revelation is because of their history. When you go back and you look what they did, they they weren't, they weren't satisfied with the land that God had given them. And so they attacked fellow Jewish people in the area of Lachish. And that became known as Dan. And today you can travel to Tel Dan. You can go to Israel. You can go to Tel Dan. It's one of my favorite places there for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, we can talk about what the tribe of Dan did. How they atrociously mistreated their brethren. And it seems that God left them out in the book of Revelation. And I would say, when I look back at their history, that would be the reason why. There's also the altar there that they found from 2,900 years ago, 2,800 years ago, 29, I guess, 28, somewhere around there, uh, for the, that held the, the golden calf with the sin of Jeroboam. There's the actual altar that they found that dates back to the time the Bible says that Jeroboam built the altar that would hold the golden calf. It's pretty amazing. And you can actually walk up and look at that altar. And it speaks to us that we don't want to operate out of fear because Jeroboam was afraid they were going to go back to Jerusalem. Remember there was a, 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 a civil war in Israel and they were split into the tribe of the nation of Judah and the nation of Israel. Jeroboam was over Israel, Rehoboam was over Judah, 
and Rehoboam was afraid they were going to leave to go back to Judah, which Jerusalem's in Judah, and then follow Rehoboam instead of him, Jeroboam. I call these guys the Boam brothers to remember them. And so he built two altars, one in Dan and one in Bethel. And the people of Israel went there and worshiped the golden calf. And the sin of Jeroboam seems to have plagued them throughout their history. It's really a sign to us, don't ever do anything out of fear. God had called Jeroboam. He was raised up because Rehoboam was not a good guy. The son of Solomon was not a good guy. But out of fear, he began to believe things and do things that were wrong. And he led Israel into sin and um, sets this, this golden calf up in Dan. And Dan did these horrible things. You can go back and you can read about it. Um, the awful things that they did. I can't remember. I, I kind of think it's in the book of Judges that you have Dan and they get their, their um, priest, Jonathan, and, and, they, and all of those things take place. All right, because they're not mentioned in the book of Revelation, 144,000. Thanks. So, yeah, I, I don't think there's anything that says that Dan, that the Antichrist is going to be from the tribe of Dan. Um, but that's the reason I believe that Dan was left out of that. All right, so thank you. I appreciate that, JG. Let's go ahead and get our next question here. Um, thank you guys for joining us. Uh, we have a question from Psych Man. Uh, Psych Man, you, if you can let me know whether or not I got your question answered uh, below. Um, I tried it again. I talked about it the very first one if you were here. Good to see you. Um, baptism of the Holy Spirit with fire accomplishes spiritual, um, spiritually that which physical water baptism represents. True or false? Baptism of the Holy Spirit with fire accomplishes spiritually that which physically water baptism represents. All right, so let's start by talking about what water baptism represents. So, baptism by John, first of all, John the Baptist, was taken from when you proselyte, from proselytite, from a Gentile to become Jewish. One of the first things you had to do was be baptized. Going under the water symbolized the old life that you had as a Gentile would be gone and you would now come out of the water in the new life that was given to you. You had to then be circumcised. You had to then keep the law, including the Sabbaths and the festivals. That was if you were a Gentile and you wanted to become Jewish. This is before the time of Jesus. John the Baptist used that principle but started baptizing Jews that they would go under the water and their old man would stay there and they would come out of the water now ready to meet the Messiah. Make the paths of your life straight, he said, for the Messiah is about to come. He's about to come. So he was the forerunner for Jesus. So when Jesus was baptized as, a, as identifying with us, he identified with us in baptism and we identify with him on the cross because he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. So then Jesus' disciples began to baptize and we were given baptism after the resurrection, go out into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So baptism is immersion. If you dunk or sprinkle, you're not going to be kept out of heaven, okay? Or if you're not baptized, but get baptized. If you're a Christian, I'll just encourage you, get baptized. It's really important for us as believers to get baptized. It's not salvation, but it's really important for us. When you go under the water, it's a symbol of your death, dying, burying the old man. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul said in Galatians. It's no longer I that live, but it's Christ that lives in me. And you come out of the water and it is a symbol of living by the power of the Holy Spirit for him. Now the question is, baptism of the Holy Spirit with fire. Um, I think maybe we don't have a great understanding of what that baptism with fire is. So John the Baptist said, one comes after me who is greater than me, his sandal straps I cannot loosen, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. These are two different events. There's two different thoughts. You're baptized with the Holy Spirit and then with fire, and this fire is a passion, this fire is a desire, this fire is being set on fire for God. If that's the case, then would the baptism of the Holy Spirit be an example 
spiritually of what took place uh, spoken of as a as a type in baptism. That may be the case. Um, I think though, when Jesus said you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit with fire, when you read the rest of that passage, it says, for his winnowing fork is in his hands and he will gather the wheat in the barn and he will burn the chaff with fire. So when he says he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and with fire, he's talking about the Holy Spirit being baptized to those who follow him and in with fire for those who don't. So I think that this is going to be a false statement, psych man. I think that the fire there doesn't represent a greater passion or being on fire for Jesus. I'm not saying God doesn't want us to have a greater passion or that God wouldn't use the Holy Spirit to do that. We have the tongues of fire that fall upon the church in the book of Acts, and that could speak of the baptism of the Holy Spirit being on fire for God. Um, but I don't necessarily think it is a, a spiritual accomplishment for that which is done physical. I think the Holy Spirit is given to us and we are baptized in the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Bible uses one time the reference baptism in the Spirit. It says they had not yet been, they had only been baptized um, in the name of the Lord Jesus. So that would be the idea that also there would be a baptism of the Holy Spirit. But other than that, there's never a reference in the Bible to being baptized in the Spirit. You have believing, you have receiving, you have overflowing, you have filled, you have the Spirit comes upon you, but only that one kind of reference that they had only been baptized with the baptism of Jesus and that had not been baptized. It doesn't say not been baptized, the Holy Spirit says they'd only been baptized with the baptism of Jesus. So I think it's proper to say, I was baptized in the Holy Spirit. I think it's also proper to say, I received the Holy Spirit or I was filled with the Holy Spirit. All of these things are proper for us uh, to be able to say. All right, Psych Man, thank you for your question. Hopefully I answered that. If not, let me know. I'll give it another shot next week. All right. If you're joining us for the very first time, it is really good to see you guys here. I'm glad you're here. I hope you're blessed. I hope you're go things are going well for you. I hope that you're drawing close to Christ and finding all that he has in you and with you. Uh, we have a question from Daniel. Daniel, good to see you. Daniel says, God knows everything and Satan told Eve that she would be like God, knowing good from evil. Therefore, since God knows everything, does God know everything about evil, even more than Satan? All right, Daniel, thank you. I got to take a drink before I try to answer that question. All right, so um, I'm going to agree with your premise that God knows everything about evil, even more than Satan. Now you ask that question, does God know? Yes, God knows more about evil than Satan does. Satan is not finite, or Satan is um, finite. God is infinite. Satan is not infinite. Um, Satan do, is not, doesn't, isn't all-knowing. God is all-knowing. So there's a lot of things Satan doesn't know. Otherwise, he would know that he shouldn't have tried to set his throne above God's throne and be cast down to earth. And God would never mock him saying, how you have fallen from heaven, Oh, son of the morning. Jesus is referred to as son of the morning. He's mocked how you have fallen from heaven, O son of the morning. Lucifer, which is not his name, but it's that reference to the mocking of Satan, son of the morning. So when Satan told Eve that she would be like God, knowing good and evil, therefore, since God knows everything, does God know more about evil than Satan does? Yes, I would say that's the case. Um, I would also go back and if I can, just for a moment, talk about um, this whole thing about saying you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. This is what Satan wanted. Satan wanted to exalt his throne above the throne of God. He wanted to be like God. He was so prideful and he was made so beautiful that he thought that he was as good as God. And I have people who will tell me, you really think that Satan saw God and thought that he was as good as God? Yes, definitely. And the answer to that is, I know people who think they're God. They have all their flaws, their problems, their struggles. They make mistakes. They know they make mistakes and they still say they're God. They still think that they are God. And so this is always the temptation. And it's a, it's a false doctrine today. There are people today who will teach you that you can be like God. You can speak things into existence. It's the same lie that was told to Eve and the same lie Eve fell for. When people teach, that we are God, whether that's the universal God 
or whether that's um, us being uh, like God, uh, then it's just falling back to that same old lie that he told. Hold on, I got um, my one of my lights here is getting funky on me. All right, so um, just a, a little bit of housekeeping there. Um, so yeah, so this is one of the lies that continues on today of people telling us that we can be like God. Um, God knows everything. And so people will often say, well then, how come God created evil if God knows everything? And how come God allows suffering if God knows everything? Because God has a plan for suffering and evil. And if you have more questions about that, we can answer that a little bit later on. But thank you, Daniel, for your question. Very thoughtful. I appreciate that and I appreciate you. It is good to see you. Uh, we have a question from Jari. Jari says, um, is crossing the Jordan a symbol of baptism and or new birth in Christ? When we are saved, we come out of the other side and we turn a 180 degree angle and cross the Red Sea as well. All right, is crossing the Jordan River a symbol of baptism and of our new birth? Uh, I think, Jari, first of all, I'm just gonna answer yes to that. I think that when the children of Israel were, were delivered out of Egypt, the interesting thing is, is that they first came into the wilderness. They spent a couple of weeks there, turned into 40 years because of their disbelief. God delivers us out of the world. We're in, under the bondage of sin. They were under the bondage of Egypt. We go through a desert for a while. God wants to bring us into the promised land. Sometimes because of our unbelief, we don't enter in. We want the things that the world has. We want the things that the world is doing. And so we don't enter in. So crossing the Jordan River, taking Jericho and Ai, which were military outposts, beginning to occupy the land, the promised land, the land that is flowing with milk and honey is a type of us crossing over into becoming a Christian and living wholeheartedly for him. I do believe that. Um, the other one, we drew a 100 degree turn across the Red Sea as well. Um, I don't know so much about that, Jari. I do know that when they left Egypt, the waters had to part and they had to cross the Red Sea. That was a sign or a picture of God's final deliverance for them. And um, there might be some other typology. I, I quite frankly haven't taken a lot of time to think about the typology that you have uh, for the crossing of the Red Sea. But remember, they crossed the Red Sea when they were delivered. 40 years later, they crossed the Jordan River and entered into the Promised Land, which was a type of you and I living for Christ. Remember, it was a Joshua that led them into the Promised Land physically, and it's a Joshua, Jesus, that leads us into the Promised Land spiritually. All right, so thank you very much, Jari, for your question. I really appreciate it. I hope you have a great day. All right, if you have a question, uh, then you can submit the word question in front of your question, reread it a couple of times, make sure that it makes sense, and we'll go ahead and get there in order. We also do this Q&A every, most Wednesdays and most Saturdays, a new time between four and five. All right, so uh, we have a question from Matt. Matt, good to see you. Good to meet you the other day, by the way. Matt says, when people lose loved ones, they often visit their graves maybe act like they are having conversations with them, etc. Biblically speaking, do the heavenly loved ones have any knowledge of these post-life things? We do, um, those things we do to honor them. Are we just doing these things for our own mourning? Thank you, Matt. That's a great question. Um, I think, first of all, when you lose someone close to you, it's such a tragedy and you grieve and you have to go through grieving. And I'll say as someone who's gone through grieving myself, just an encouragement, go through the grieving. You can, you, can get, you can get stuck in it or you can try to escape it. It's one of the reasons that somebody can lose someone that they've loved and been married to for many years and then get into another relationship so quick or they get into alcohol or they get into drugs because they're looking for some way to escape the pain. But the only way to go healthy through the grief is to go all the way through it. As far as whether or not they can hear us when we're speaking, I'm sorry to do this to you, Matt, 
but I have to give you an I don't know. The Bible says the hidden things belong to God and the revealed things belong to us. And we are just not, we just don't have revealed whether or not our loved ones are ever able to see us. I can tell you, I lost my late wife 10 years ago this December to lung cancer. It was a brutal time in my life and the grieving afterwards was a brutal time. And I felt some anger and I felt some, some um, guilt that I didn't handle things properly. And I really just wanted to see her again. And I wondered if she was around. I wonder if she could hear me. Same kind of thing when I would go to her grave. I just didn't know. But I had a dream one night and her face was lit up and she was walking away from me and I, she could see me and hear me and I was calling her name and waving at her, but she just was walking forward or, or away, kind of a, a sideways from me. And then she looked at me, kind of smiled, and then she turned and went around a corner. Now, she said near the end of her life, she take, took to calling her friend, saying to her friends, instead of goodbye, I'll see you around the corner. That's what the statement she would make. So what a psychologist could do with my dream, right? When I see her going around a corner. Two things though about that dream were very important to me. Number one, her face was radiant. Three months later, I did the funeral of her father who had died from cancer as well uh, and um, lymphoma, I think. And he, I read Psalm 34 and it says, and they looked upon him and their faces were radiant. By the way, her father gave her life, his life to Christ because of Lisa. She lived her whole life witnessing for him. He never came to Christ. And then in the last few weeks of his life, Lisa's sister, Debbie, led Keith to the Lord and he wanted to see Lisa. And he was, I don't know, dreams, visions, hysteria. He was seeing Lisa. And he would ask Debbie, do you see her? Did you see her? And he said, I want to be with her. And she led him in a prayer and he gave his life to Christ. And so at his funeral, I was reading Psalms 34. And while I was reading it there, I read, and they looked upon him and their faces were radiant. And I remembered my dreams of Lisa and her face was always lit up. Their faces are radiant because they see God. And I think her turning the corner and kind of ignoring me as I was yelling and waving was a way for God to tell me she's no longer about the things of this earth. She's not, she knows she's about heaven and she's living in heaven. And we're living on earth and going through the things of this earth. And I don't know whether she can ever see things or she can ever have conversations with her kids or not, maybe. I don't know, those, I don't know. But what I do know is that she's in the presence of God now and her face is radiant. She's in heaven and she's probably about heavenly things and we're on earth probably about earthly things. So, hey, go ahead, have conversations at the graveside. Go ahead and pray and then you could talk to them. It's okay, that's part of the grieving process. You're saying goodbye, you're changing your life. It's radical and it's very, very important to go all the way through while you're facing grief. All right, Matt, good to see you. Cute little baby there, by the way. And um, thank you for your question. Uh, we have a question from Andre. Andre's always got good questions, sometimes stumping questions, things that I don't know. Uh, is Revelation 6, 9 through 11 proof believers after death remain, retain memories? Sorrowful events. The Lord doesn't eliminate sorrow until Revelation 21, 11. So, well, let's go ahead and go to that text. So this is Revelation and it's in chapter six, verses nine and 11. Verses six, nine, and 11. Let me go ahead and get this up for you. I'll put it on the screen and you can take a look at it as well. So um, let's just take a look backwards here a little bit. This is, does it say? Okay, so it's the two witnesses, right? And then in six through 11, so that's what you said, right? Let me just go back here and make sure I got the right one before I read it all and have the wrong one. Revelation six, not Revelation 11. All right, let me go ahead and, I thought so. Let me go ahead and correct that. Revelation six, 11. All right, there we go. All right, so let me go ahead and bring that up on the screen for you now, all right? Um, thank you for that, uh, being patient with me. So this is the fifth seal, the cry of the martyrs, okay? So we have 
at the beginning of the tribulation period, the tribulation, I mean the tribulation and the rapture of the church. We are not going to see the wrath of God. It's not going to be put upon us. God said, I will keep you from the hour of testing coming upon all the whole world. The end of the book of, uh, in Luke 21, the end of the chapter there, it says that we ought to uh, watch and pray that we would be counted worthy to escape all those things that will come to pass upon the Son of Man. Uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, you're not all going to sleep, but I tell you a mystery. We're going to be changed in a moment, a twinkling of an eye. So we are brought into his presence, uh, raptured off of this earth, and the dead in Christ rise first. And that's the first part of the, really the second part, because Jesus was the first of the first resurrection. Then the rapture of the church is the second. Now you have seven years. These guys will not receive their bodies like we have until the end of the tribulation period. So let's read what it says about them. We're going to start in verse 9. Now he opened the fifth seal and I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for their testimony that they had held. And they cried with a loud voice, How long, O Lord, how long? Uh, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Here's your question then. Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed um, as they were uh, was complete. All right, so let's go back to your question here. Let's read it with that passage in mind now and see if we can find an answer. Is Revelation 6, 9 through 11 proof believers after death uh, retain their memories of sorrowful events? The Lord doesn't eliminate sorrow until Revelation 21, 4, where there's no more sorrow, no more pain, right? The things that are not up in heaven. Um, so yeah, I do believe that at that point, they have not been glorified or have their glorified bodies. Their life's been taken from them and they are in some kind of an intermediate state. I don't know if it's the same kind of the intermediate state as with us. It says here uh, they are under the altar, right? Um, when the fifth seal was opened, uh, the testimony was given and they cried out with a loud voice. Um, they're, they're in some kind of intermediate state and they're looking for revenge. They can obviously remember those things. Um, I don't know that we're going to receive a hard reboot and not be able to remember anything or whether we're going to see things as God sees them and we're gonna have a fullness of joy. I know that God's gonna to have to do something within us so that the sorrowful events that we've gone through, we won't be filled with sorrow. The joy of God, the complete trust in God, and for those that we know that didn't receive him and what's happening to them um, is also sorrow, but there's no more sorrow that's there. This is the reason people think that all of our memories are wiped away and we just exist, but it's not true. I don't know what God's gonna do to, for us not to have that sorrow, I think that will be there, but we will still know one another in heaven. We'll still have relationships with one another in heaven. We'll know those who we knew here. I like what Greg Laurie says. One thing I can tell you is we will not be dumber in heaven than we are right now. Um, but these guys are in a unique situation and they have yet to really enter in because they are in the intermediate state. Um, and there's an intermediate state now when people who die and I think that we are waiting, they are waiting. Paul talked in a very similar manner to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, where he talked about giving them rest from those who had martyred them when he returns. So, um, yeah, I think that um, God's going to do something. And these guys are in an intermediate state while we are, have our bodies because we've been, we've been um, raptured. We're going through the Bema seat. We're going through the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. These guys are in intermediate state and they're wondering how much longer before these things finally take place. They're given white robes and they're encouraged a little while longer, just wait, and it's going to happen. And maybe we need that encouragement too. A little while longer, just wait, and these things are going to happen. Thank you, Andre, for your question. I really appreciate it. It's good to see you guys. If you're here for the very first time and you have a question, then you can write the word question down and then write out your question, reread it a couple of times, make sure that it makes sense and go ahead and submit your question. All right, um, so um, let me just go ahead and get to another question here. We have a question from Sharon. Another question about 
uh, Jesus coming back uh, to the earth about the millennium, all right? Uh, so Sharon says, when Jesus comes back with all the saints, well, all the saints come with him. Okay, when Jesus comes back and all the saints come with him, will everyone stay here on earth for a thousand years? So we have, from right now, we've got a few events that have to happen. We've got the Gog and Magog War, whenever that happens. Some believe it has to, it has to be before the tribulation period because they need seven years to bury all the dead and burn all the weapons. So it's some kind of new, new warfare that they need seven years to deal with things. So some believe that that has to be, uh, can't be during the millennium, that it's got to be before the, the rapture or shortly after the rapture. The second is the rapture of the church. Has to happen. God said he's coming back for his saints. We're going to be caught up to meet him in the air. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me. And then there is the seven-year tribulation period that Jesus returns to, and some people will still be alive. Remember, there's a protection of the Jewish people that the dragon wants to attack and tear apart. And so God protects them by hiding them in the wilderness. Some people believe that they will be hidden in Petra. I don't know. But when Jesus establishes his kingdom, at the end of the book of Matthew 24, he sends his angels to the four corners of the earth with a trumpet, and a trumpet, it was a gathering tool. You gather people together with a trumpet. That's why you have a trumpet with a rapture and a trumpet as you gather together the elect from the four corners of the earth. But they, in 1 Thessalonians, they meet the Lord in the air. In the end of Matthew 24, he gathers them together on earth. And, the, um, and then they come to Christ in Jerusalem. They gather them together at Christ in Jerusalem. And he rules and reigns on the throne, and he rules over the people who were alive, who go out and populate the earth. And at the end of that thousand-year period, there's a rebellion from those who were born during those thousand years. There could be a lot of people born during that time. If there's a nine-month gestation, and if people grow old the same rate we grow old, there are a lot of people that could be on the earth within a thousand years. And then there will be a rebellion and there will be one final judgment on them and Jesus will return to this earth, or, or excuse me, Jesus will destroy that final rebellion and then the heavens and the earth will melt away. There'll be a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem that will go on from there. All right, so hopefully that answers your question. Let me just read it one more time, make sure I got it. Um, when Jesus comes back with all of his saints and we come with him, which is true, I think that's Colossians that tells us when Jesus returns that we are going to come back with him. And so then it goes on to say, um, will everyone stay here on the earth for a thousand years? Yes, we will. And then we got the new heaven and the new earth. And remember, we had a question last week about those who were ruling and reigning after the millennium, which tells us that something is still going on after the millennium period. All right. Thank you, Sharon. I hope that that answers uh, your question. Let me go ahead and look at the, for another question here. Again, it's really good to see you guys. Good to see you, Keith. Uh, Keith is one of our moderators. I think Daniel's doing some moderation as well. Um, it's good to see you guys. Um, so we have a follow-up uh, from Psychman. So let's go ahead and take that follow-up question. Um, Psychman says, uh, Psychman45, says, Mark 9.49 says, everyone, including us then, will be seasoned with fire. So what do Christians get subjected to fire? Chuck says that John the Baptist, uh, fire, baptism, is purifying. Okay, well, let's take a look at your passage there, uh, psych man. So that's Mark 9.49. All right, Mark 9. Then I got to get to 49. I still got to find a, a quicker way to be able to type in Mark 949. I'm working on that, by the way. And so I don't have to do it this way where I've got to put it in a scroll down. Um, all right. So let me, we need to read this in context again, psych man. So let me read your question again. Um, Mark 949 says, everyone, including us, question mark, uh, will be seasoned with fire. So when Christians get subject to fire, 
Chuck, and I, you mean Chuck Smith, I think, says that John the Baptist's fire baptism is purifying. Um, the interesting thing about Chuck, if you're talking about Pastor Chuck, there's Chuck Swindoll, Chuck Missler, uh, Chuck Smith, right? So there's a lot of different Chucks that are out there. But the interesting thing about Chuck Smith is, is that I heard him talking about uh, the baptism by fire, talking about passion. I heard him talking about the baptism by fire being the, the, the wicked, the dead, or the chaff that's blown away and thrown into the furnace, which would be the context of what John the Baptist said. Um, and I've heard him talk about fire being passion. Um, but let's just go ahead and take a look at this passage. So this is Mark 9. Uh, the passage that you talked about was 49, right? Um, for everyone, let me get there. Let me, let me just read this here. For everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if salt loses its flavor, how will you salt it? Have salt in yourself and have peace with another. So they're just an interesting verse, right? That's going to take a lot of time to pour into to really get it. But let's come back and look at the context because sometimes the context can help us. So he's talking about hell here, right? Jesus warns of offenses. Let's just go ahead and read it back. Um, I realize I'm coming back kind of far, but I think it will help us. Um, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. It doesn't say that's going to happen to him. It says if you hurt one of these new believers, if you're just out to hurt the faith of one believer, it would be better for you if a millstone were to be tied around your neck and you just cast yourself into the sea now. In other words, there's a hot spot for you. It goes on in verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands and go into hell, into fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm does not die and where the fire is not quenched. So here he's speaking metaphorically. It would be better for you to radically take care of things. We know that no one lame is going up into heaven. So we having an eye or a you know, foot or a hand cut off wouldn't help you. He's saying get rid of whatever, even though it's valuable to you, get rid of it because it would be better for you to go into heaven than to not with whatever it is that you won't give up. Then verse 45, and if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life lame rather than having two feet and be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire does not go out. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into the hell fire where the worm never dies and the fire never, go, never goes out. Then he says, for everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if it loses its flavor, how will you season it again? Have salt in yourself and have peace with one another. So I would, I would take the everyone being seasoned with fire. I don't know that I would necessarily say that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It, that this would be connected to what John the Baptist said. So he's talking about the fire of hell. That's the context. And then he says, every one of us is going to be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. And I think that's talking about our testing, that God's going to test us, that there's going to be difficulties and trials in this world. You're going to have trouble. And so we're going to be seasoned with fire. And that brings maturity to be something to be seasoned would speak of it being taken to the place where it is just right and um and 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 will be seasoned with salt so just bringing us to the point of things being just right i just don't know that there's a connection between this and what john the baptist says about him coming who's going to um who's going to baptize you with the holy spirit and with fire now when i've told people before that i don't believe that John the Baptist is talking about baptizing us with fire, like tongues of fire. And you do have that tongues of fire that is there, which could speak of what John the Baptist was saying. It's just when I read it in context, I find that when you read that John the Baptist says the Holy Spirit with fire, then he says the winnowing fork is in his hand and he gathers the grain into the barn and burns the chaff with fire. You have a burning of fire of the ungodly really close to him baptizing with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So I find it hard to just think that it's just that. So um, psych man, I would say 
in your follow-up. I'm not sure they're connected. I certainly could be wrong. I mean, these verses um, are a little bit hard to grasp and a little bit hard to really understand. But I think that when you take it in context, it's talking about suffering in hell and then talking about fire seasoning us here. That would be the difficulties and struggles that we go through here and that we are being seasoned with. At least that's what I think. All right. So thank you for your follow-up question. Uh, again, if you have more follow-up question, I'd love to hear it. All right. We have another question here from Lisa. Um, Lisa says, question, if you are dying and you are not baptized, but accepted Jesus as your savior, is that acceptable to God? Um, let me, let me just say this, Lisa, first of all, I think that every believer should be baptized because Jesus said that we should be baptized. He identified with us. He stood in line with sinners and he was baptized. And I think that that should be something that we do. We are to go out, make disciples of all nations, of all, make disciples from all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So I think that we should be baptized. And I encourage people in the church that I pastor, be baptized. Even if you haven't done it for 30 years, come and be baptized. And when I baptize people and they haven't been baptized in such a long time, I'll ask them, how long you been a Christian? I'm expecting two or three months and I'll hear uh, 32 years. And my response is always the same. And now you're getting baptized. And they go, yeah. And I say, all right, let's get this done. It's time. Let's get it done. So don't put it off. You can go to your church, ask them about baptisms, find out when their baptism is. If your church won't do it, find a good, solid Bible-believing church that will. If you live in Tucson, we do baptisms every month. You have to be signed up to do it. It's something we started during COVID. Um, but people are showing up to the baptisms and just being baptized. We aren't turning people away. When they say, I'm a believer, I gave my life to Christ, I want to be baptized, then we allow them to go and be baptized. Sometimes they're getting baptized in their clothes and walking away wet just because they see the importance of being baptized. Let me take this a step further. Um, if you're dying and you're not baptized, I would say if you like, if you know that you're dying, you've gone to the doctor and he said you've got six months to live. One of the things that I would do in those six months, pray for healing, of course. Believe that God could heal me and, and grant me more days. But I would be baptized. Not because I think it's, it's salvation, because it's not. I think if you die, you're fine. You're in heaven. But I just want obedience completely to Christ. I don't want any rebellion at all in me. And the closer I get to going home, the more I don't want any rebellion. Rebellion, remember, is as the sin of witchcraft. And I'm not saying, Lisa, that you're being rebellious by not being baptized. I'm simply saying I, I would want to get baptized. I was baptized shortly after I gave my life to Christ, and I encourage you to do that. Now, let's just say you're hit by a car. You're damaged completely. You're, you're, you're beyond the point of help. You're bleeding out. And now, what do you do? Is this acceptable to God? Yes, of course. God's not going to say, you know what? You didn't get baptized. You can't make it into heaven. He's also not going to say you were sprinkled and not immersed. You're not going to make it into heaven. You're poured, not immersed, poured on, not immersed. You're not going to make it into heaven. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. And I think that we could have other examples of people that get saved and die before they have a chance to get baptized. And baptism is never a requirement for heaven, but it is something that we're told to do. There's a lot of things that we're told to do that are not a requirement of heaven. God wants you to have that milestone in your life that you go under the water as a symbol of the burial of the old person and up out of the water as a symbol of your newness to life. And Lisa, by the way, this question might not have been for you. So you may be baptized and I understand that. I'm just making the point from your question that yes, we need to be baptized. But if you die and you haven't been baptized, then that is certainly going to be okay. All right? It is acceptable to God, but I would rather just make sure that I get baptized. All right? Thank you, Lisa. I really appreciate that. Um, we have just a few more minutes. I'd love to answer a few more questions. If you have them, write the word question down. 
um, and then write out your question after it, reread it a couple of times, make sure that it makes sense, and then we'll go ahead and bring it in. If we don't have any more questions, then we'll go ahead and wrap it up now. Um, but it is really good to see you guys. Um, we have another question from, looks like fact check these hands. Is that right? Fact check these hands. All right, I like it. A question, what do we receive? Um, why do we receive a new name in heaven? Abe's, will there be Hebrew names? Um, and will they be Hebrew names? I think is what you mean. So, um, why do we receive a new name in heaven? If I think about the names that we receive in heaven, we receive a name that no one knows except him who was given that name. So I think maybe it has something to do with your characteristics. We see throughout the Bible that God gave people new names. Abram, which means father, was changed to Abraham, which means father of many, and God would make him the father of many nations. We see Jacob, which means supplanter, and his name is changed to ruled by God, which is what Israel means. And so Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Sarai was named as changed to Sarah. Um, Cephas was changed to Peter, which means stone or rock. And it seems like he had some difficulties, denied Christ on the night of his resurrection, but he does stand as a rock because that's what God's done for him. So I think there's something about that heavenly name that God gives us and that only we know. I, I've joked, joked before because sometimes I can be annoying to people and I've joked before that God's new name for me is going to be annoying. I hope it's not annoying. Hey, annoying, come here. You were so annoying to people, I'm going to give you the new name annoying. I think also there's a mystery to this and we don't have to understand all mysteries. Sometimes we can just step back and go, mm, I don't exactly understand what this mystery is. But I know that there's a mystery here and God's going to give you your new name. I imagine it's going to be a comfort to you. I imagine it's going to be an encouragement to you. Remember, this is his bride. I don't believe mine's going to be anointing. I mean, excuse me, anointing. I believe don't, uh, annoying. Anointing might be good, but Jesus is the anointed one. He's the Messiah. Um, but I guess you can be anointed for a position. Um, but whatever God's new, new name for you is, I think it's going to be great. Have no idea if it's our Hebrew names. I have no idea if Hebrew is the, the language that spoke up in heaven or not. Um, by the way, just thinking of the Hebrew language, do you know that they found um, a, a small clay tablet from Mount Eber that was dated back to the time, to the late bronze period, which the latest had could be as 1200 BC, and it's Hebrew. And I bring that up because the critics say, that there was no Hebrew in the late bronze period. The late bronze period would have been when Moses was in Egypt and when Moses delivered the children of Israel. And they found a tablet on Mount Eber that was the curses on the mountain that they shouted the curses from. There was the blessings from Mount Gerizim and the curses from Mount Ebal. They found this little lead um, uh, stone or plaque that had written inside of it Hebrew words and the name Yahweh is in it several times very powerful, uh, really encouraging when it comes to um, archaeology today. So take time to look it up. It's a, I think they call it a cursed stone or a cursed plaque. Um, and they found it's just an inch wide, lead folded, and they've got some new, they, they couldn't pry it apart. They thought they would never figure out what was inside, but they have a new way to read what's inside, and a new technology, and it is Hebrew that dates back to the late bronze period. So much for all of those people that said that Hebrew wasn't around until five and 600 BC. It was around between 12 to 14, 1500 BC, and Moses wrote the New Testament in it. And um, this is how they attack the Bible. They try to say that we know science says there's never been anything, you know, Hebrew wasn't around in their day until they find something. And this is always the problem of an argument from silence. All right, so will it be a Hebrew name? I don't know, sorry. There's, there's a lot of things that we just don't know. There's nothing in the Bible that would indicate what the language would be and that it could possibly be Hebrew. All right, so again, really good to see you guys. Uh, and let me see if we've got another question. We do. Um, this is from Fact Check These Hands again. I'm gonna go ahead and bring you in here. We're near the end of our podcast. Uh, good to see you, Carl, too, by the way. 
I see you guys just checking in there. It's good. Um, glad you're watching. Um, so, uh, Faction says, question, in the Millennium Kingdom, will we perform jobs or roles similar to what we now, or will God allow us to do something we want to do and we're not able to do in our mortal lives? Uh, I think it's going to be different. I don't think that God's going to go now, Robert, you're good. You're pastor. You did your job for, you know, right now, 40 years, maybe it'll be longer. I'm hoping <laughs> much longer. Um, unless Christ goes back for us, right? Um, but remember, when God created Adam and Eve, he created them in the image of God. And then he gave them dominion over the earth. He wanted them to rule and reign with him. He also created a celestial kingdom that he wanted angels, spiritual beings to rule and reign with them there. And then there was a fall in heaven and there was a fall on earth. And now Satan is the God of this earth. And we, during the millennial period, will rule and reign with Christ. It's different than political jobs today. We're gonna, he's going to be the ruler. He's going to be the king. And we're going to be on his staff. And I don't know what job he's got for each one of us. Maybe that's part of our rewards, the job we get. I know Pastor Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapel, said that he's already got Hawaii tucked away. That's what he, he wants to rule Hawaii um, during the millennium period. I don't know exactly how it all works. Again, we're not told all the details of these things, but we do know that we will have restored during the millennium the earth God wanted, and the earth that God wanted was that men and women would rule and reign with him. All right, so I hope that answers your question. Fact check these hands. I appreciate that. I'm going to go ahead and take a look here and see if we've got any more questions. I've got just a couple of more minutes and then I'm going to have to take out. I also want to give you an invitation to our church service tonight. If you're here in Tucson, we have two of them, East and West Campus. The East Campus is 6 p.m. The West is 7.15. We'll be taking communion together. If you're going to watch us live online, get your communion stuff to get ready. And um, we're having um, one of our our pastor that oversees our West Campus is going to be leading communion on the East Campus. And one of our new pastors, uh, JD or John David, is going to be doing communion on the West Campus. And then I'm going to be teaching from the book of Galatians. Uh, we're going to be talking about the chain of custody of the gospel. Paul claims in the last part of chapter one, I wasn't, I, I didn't come up with this. I wasn't told this, but it came from Christ, the gospel. And I want to go back and look at the Old Testament and see where we can see the gospel in the Old Testament so that we can get that chain of custody. Remember when evidence is given, there's always a chain of custody in a court sense that is given with the evidence. So you know who had custody of it. So how did God custody the gospel before it was given to Paul? And then finally, before it was given to you and me, and what are we doing with it now? That's what we'll be talking about tonight in our service. I look forward to seeing you guys there. All right, so I've got just a couple more minutes. Looks like I've got one more question. Uh, and this comes from, please stop judging people. Again, love, your, love the title, please stop judging people. Um, is it wrong to say, pray some family is resting in peace, RIP with God, but okay if we don't have coffee with some family when we come back with Jesus? So, I'm having a hard time really understanding the question. Let me read it again and see if I can figure it out. Is it wrong to say, I pray some family is RIP with God? But okay, if we don't have coffee with some family when we come back with Jesus. So, I'm not sure what you're asking. I'm sorry. Sometimes I just can't figure it out. Um, would you come back uh, for our Wednesday Q&A? Maybe clarify that a little bit for me and then ask the question again. All right. So um, I do really appreciate you guys. Uh, it's 4.59. We need to wrap up at 5. Um, I'm going to get these questions uh, that the log will be sent to me and I'll be able to go back and look at them. And I choose these for future Q&As and I have a lot of them ready to go. Um, but I've really enjoyed spending the time with you guys today. I hope that you are blessed. I hope that God uses you. 
I hope that there are sacrifices that you are making for him, knowing that God sees and will honor each of those sacrifices. May the sacrifices that you make be a sweet smelling aroma that goes up into the presence of God. So the Lord bless you and keep you. May you stay close to him. Love you guys. And we will see you the next time we have our Q&A. By the way, we've got our new backdrop going. Um, that's uh, Tucson, Arizona, where I'm from, uh, with the A Mountain, which is for the U of 